Welcome to the third episode of our podcast, Brighter Talks. As you know, the Brighter Talks podcast is about our cities and how we can prepare them for a brighter future, making them more efficient, more sustainable, and more livable. In each Brighter Talks episode, I speak with an expert, a scientist, an architect, a university professor. We speak about their respective visions of a future city and how those visions can become reality. And I'm excited to welcome today's guest, Thomas de Lausson. He's a global expert on mobility, and we'll be talking about the current status of how we live and move in global cities, what needs to change to make mobility more sustainable, and how can that change take place? What will cars, the dominant paradigm of the last century, look like in 30 years' time? What kind of materials will they be made of? What technology will they be using? There's a lot more questions where that came from, and hopefully we'll unpack the current status of public transport as well. Um, thank you for joining us, Thomas. Thank you, Greg. Thomas, I've already mentioned that you're a global mobility expert, but could you tell us a bit more about your background and how you got into the field? Well, I'm actually part of a family that has quite a long history with the industry. And I was quite fascinated by cars uh, when I was younger. And this fascination has now moved into uh, something more for the wider industry. That led me to work for 15 years in, uh, for an automotive manufacturer and uh, for a year and a half now trying to look into how we can change the way mobility is being consumed and, and operated today. What do you think of the current state of mobility? I mean, you know, we live in a world that's been shaped by the automobile. Obviously, we have, a, you know, a huge, you know, billions of people in the global south who are buying their first cars. Uh, you know, are you optimistic or pessimistic? And, and what do you think of when you think of the future of mobility? I think we're all exposed to it on a daily basis. And I think you're right to have a different approach by region. Um, the way mobility is done in countries like India or Asia is obviously very different to what we can know from Americas or US and, and Japan or Europe. When I consider mobility today, I'm, I'm honestly quite shocked. If you really look at it from a well-being perspective, there is a lot that is honestly, I think, beyond the limits of what we should, we should be tolerating. If you look at India, uh, there are many cities now with emergency actions because the air quality is actually a threat to the health of the people. In other uh, cities uh, like US or Europe, you see congestion basically eating up the, the time of people just to go to work or access uh, health or, or education. In other uh, regions of the world, such as Japan, uh, there are uh, really difficult conditions when it comes to using public transport. So I do think that today, uh, we are reaching the limits of the mobility systems as we know them in the last century. And, and we need to think differently uh, on how we commute, how we manage our air quality, and also how we manage our space. Well, on a more personal level, if I understand correctly, you live in Geneva. So how do you get to work and how do you move about in a small, one of the most livable cities in the world? Well, I, we are very lucky here to have a... Uh, very efficient public transit system, which I am using on a daily basis, uh, which I combine with walking. I also try uh, on the weekends as much as possible to cycle. And that's also valid for my wife and my kids. But I have to say that it starts to get a little bit cold and we are very often tempted to just use the car. Well, I say that temptation uh, magnified to, to large scale sort of leads us to the next question in the sense of, you know, um, 
We live in a golden age of mobility in the sense of more people are moving further and more rapidly around the world. And of course, that has implications for opportunity and accessibility, but it's also created these externalities, right? Uh, you know, we know, for example, that, you know, transportation is the second greatest source of emissions. Uh, the International Energy Agency recently published that, you know, the SUV purchases have been the second largest increase uh, in CO2 over the last decade. What are the other consequences of this sort of mobility revolution, you know, both in the last decade and sort of the larger century of it? And yeah, how do we avert sort of the worst of those consequences? Yeah, I really like the way you put it, which is to avoid the worst of these consequences, because we should never omit that mobility also provides a lot when it comes to uh, economic growth, uh, access to health, access to education. But back on the worst side that we need to absolutely eradicate, I think we have to consider the fact that Mobility has moved from a right, very much something that was driving status in the last century, to a constraint today. It is eating up time, as I mentioned. I think the average commuting time is around an hour uh, around the world, but is exceeding this in many, many cities. We also have to think that uh, mobility is sometimes a constraint when it comes to accessibility. There are still many countries and cities in the world where the basic access to infrastructure or mobility means is still uh, not there. Mobility also is a threat at, in many times. Uh, I've mentioned the case of India, but it's also the case in China, in, in any major mega city. Uh, we see the health and the air quality being at risk. As we know, that I think the, the fact is that we have around more than 80% uh, of the cities today have an air quality uh, that is uh, below the recommended level by the World Health Organization. And finally, as you mentioned, we have a lot of uh, externalities of the current way we, we, we move that are impacting the planet. You mentioned CO2 and greenhouse gas emission, but there are other emissions, uh, whether these are uh, nitrous dioxides or particle matters, which we tend to forget. And there was recently an interesting uh, study uh, in Switzerland just next to us showing how microparticles of plastics and rubber in particular were absolutely detrimental to the very... Uh, ecosystem that is nearby the highways. And that shows again that we think we need to embrace the consequences of the way we have designed our mobility and start to eradicate them at once. So it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the air particulates because there's a whole school of thought that if we can just eliminate the internal combustion engine and replace it with electric cars, we can you know, make the car itself a more sustainable mean of transport. But as you pointed out, you know, we, we know that those air particulates, for example, are coming from the tires, um, that there's other aspects of cars and the mobility ecosystem that are contributing to these externalities. So my question is, is, yeah, you know, what else needs to change beyond just simply electrifying the vehicle or making it hydrogen or other means? And what are going to be the biggest stumbling blocks in sort of transforming this mobility ecosystem? Well, thanks for bringing that up, because I think the electrification is a very good example of the level of complexity that we are contemplating when we consider changing mobility. Exactly as you said, electrification is a very promising technology because it will reduce the tailpipe emissions. But we all know now that if we do not look at a well-to-wheel uh, approach and understand where exactly are the emissions, it is very probable that electrification will just be another technology with another externality. So that is a perfect example to explain the magnitude of the change that we need to embrace here. You know, it's about technology and electrification is one of them. It's also about gathering the right data, you know, making sure that we understand what we're talking about in cities, in countries, and try to leverage 
the formidable capability we have with digitalization to aggregate this data and understand it. Beyond that, we know that there's a lot to do with mindset change. And um, this is obviously one of the key uh, difficulties because we need to take the people not just to uh, electric cars, but maybe uh, in other forms of mobility. And finally, we know that all of that, which uh, relates to the change of, of paradigm of mobility, needs to be financed. And that's, again, going to bring an additional layer of complexity. So we are looking at something called system change, which is obviously very, very uh, complex, but that we believe we can approach if we, uh, if we embrace collaboration. What do you think the role of the automakers is in this transformation? Because we've seen, you know, you invoked disruption earlier. And, you know, we've seen the OEMs are investing literally tens of billions of dollars in electrification, whether it's the German automotive companies or the Chinese upstarts or even U.S. companies. And they've also invested in creating these new mobility arms, exploring scooters and bicycles. But their, their business is rooted, of course, in manufacturing cars, whether that's internal combustion or electric. Um, how can they pivot to really become good stewards in this new ecosystem? Because, uh, you know, if they, if they get the timing wrong, of course, you know, it will mess with their core business. Um, so I'm curious, you know, how, how have you seen them react and how are they balancing this massive, you know, trillion dollar change? I think you're putting your finger on a very interesting problem here, Greg. The automotive manufacturing has moved from being very successful, very profitable in the first half of the 20th century to being extremely tight uh, on margins and, and still requiring more and more investment over the second half of the last century. And in the last 20 years, it has embraced two technological disruption and is about to embrace its third one which no need to mention is extremely expensive and extremely risky from a competitive perspective. So you can understand that they are basically on the edge. This is a matter of life and death to the automotive industry. And we are talking a mammoth machine that is able to spit out almost 100 million cars per year. And so there are huge, huge implications when it comes to the amount of money that is being spent there, the amount of jobs that is being spent there, the amount of of people that can be satisfied in moving. So this is really no small deal here. So I think it is obvious that because of all what I just mentioned, the automotive industry will take its time, will try to find the best way to remain competitive, sustain their business while embracing the transition to a more sustainable mobility. And we see some of them taking the leap of faith. Many manufacturers, whether these are German or French uh, or even Americans, have started to put their hands up for committing to a net zero emission uh, in the next two or three decades. Now, we have to understand there that they cannot really go faster. I mean, again, these are massive behemoths uh, spitting metal uh, every second uh, of every day. And so with that in mind, they have to operate this transition, this pivot, as you mentioned, while being able to secure the sustainability of their business. It is not anymore about bending metal, welding metal, assembling that with plastic and selling air. It is about managing their resource, the resource that they're extracting from the planet and, and trying to make the most out of it. Embracing circularity is to me, next to mobility services and data, the three pillars of uh, the future of cars. I'm curious your thoughts on sort of what effective policies exist to sort of make that shift as well. Because we've seen, I mean, the electric car, for example, has been accelerated by the fact that, you know, both China and Germany have passed very stringent air quality laws that make electrics 
uh, you know, almost impossibly more desirable than the internal combustion engine. So, um, you know, what other policies should governments be considering or what other actions have you seen that can really create that kind of behavior change in a short period of time? Yeah, the policy is indeed a big uh, piece of the puzzle for change. And uh, when it comes to electrification, there is clearly a, a need now to establish policy that will not just uh, incentivize people to move from internal combustion engine to electric cars, for example, but also start to uh, place the policy related to the charging network. And with the charging network, we need to think about the distribution network. Otherwise, we will very soon find ourselves in a very uh, discomforting position when it comes to customers may, uh, making the choice for electrical cars, but somehow the charging infrastructure not being Uh, addressed at all. And so we will move from a range anxiety, which has been the blocking point of the last decade on electric cars, to a charging anxiety. And we already see in many cities of the world long queues to uh, charging points. So there is also there, for example, on electrification, a great uh, need for additional policy. Interesting. Is there more governments could do as well in terms of advocating, you know, how cars specifically should be designed. I mean, there's been various plans floated over the years by, say, the Rocky Mountain Institute in the United States on, you know, radically new approaches to material design and fuel efficiency standards, um, you know, before the electrification shift. I'm curious if you've, other, if you've seen other policies around the world um, to, to advocate for other parts of the vehicle or ways, you know, safety, obviously, safety regulations have really sort of changed the game for cars over the years. Um, I don't know, are there any other sort of effective policies we've seen beyond just simply electrification? Yes, yes. So um, there are more and more policy emerging related to the different pieces of the puzzle that need to change. And one of them, which we have not mentioned yet, is the need to make every car or every ride shared. This is probably the biggest lever in terms of emission reduction, congestion reduction, air quality improvement that we have in front of us. And we see some cities starting to take this approach with, on one end, the zero emission zones, you know, which are obviously focused on prioritizing electric vehicles. But we also see some cities starting to approach uh, their city center where only shared cars or taxi services Can, can enter. This is the case for Madrid for, for a while now. And, and we believe in this uh, policy making as a good opportunity to really, you know, not just tackle the, the very small portion of new cars that are produced on a yearly basis, but basically address the big mass of cars that are blocked in traffic every day at commuting hours. Well, you, know, you mentioned shared rides. I mean, the ultimate version of that, of course, is public transport. And you and I are both fortunate to live in cities with excellent public transportation systems. But, I mean, I don't know, globally speaking, but certainly in the United States, um, where I'm from, public transport has been in decline for seemingly decades. I mean, even bus ridership has been falling more recently. And there's been a lot of discussion about whether a lot of the innovation and new mobility over the last decade, whether it's ride hailing or scooters or anything else, has contributed to those declines. Um, you know, what role does public transport play in this future? Can we, can we bolster it? Can we still shift people out of their cars onto public transport? Or is that a dream? Um, I'm curious how you see how it fits into this sort of new ecosystem. My position is very straightforward. I do believe that sustainable mobility relies on the backbone, which is public transit, mass public transit. This is the best way to move as many people as we can at the lowest impact as we can. And so it is there again important to differentiate region by region. And you quoted US where indeed probably public transport or mass public transit hasn't been the the mode of choice by the authorities for the last decades. But there are other places in the world where th this has been the case. And what we see is really a, an opportunity, as you mentioned, to try to harness 
the new mobility services, the new modes that are emerging with the existing public transit backbone in trying to create new um, mobility systems. But it is true that in many uh, regions, people will not naturally move away from uh, their cars and, and get into public transit because very often the frequency is unreliable. It is probably less comfortable than sitting uh, in a car and and much, much more seamless. You know, you still need to cover the famous first mile, last mile dilemma to access uh, uh, public transport. So there is quite a lot to do to uh, improve public transit, but I do think that it's the backbone of sustainable mobility. Yeah, how does you know so-called micromobility fit into this vision? I mean, I'm thinking of the fact that you know electric bike sales in Germany far outstrip electrical vehicle sales. You know, there's been the rise of the scooter companies, and you know, I, I read the stories about them clogging the streets of Paris, for example. But at the same time, you know, uh, I remember I was at a dinner of an executive who was one of the ride-hailing companies in the United States who had switched jobs to one of the micromobility companies, uh, and this person said that they try as they might to make people share ride-hailing, they wouldn't do it. And so they, they thought it was a better idea to simply give each person a personal vehicle, but a much smaller one. Uh, and I'm curious about, you know, what other modes might emerge to cause this shift out of the car, perhaps not into a shared ride, but into a personal ride of a, of a device that weighs, you know, kilograms versus tons? I think micromobility is a great opportunity. It is unfortunately coming in as part of the typical disruption and technological disruption approach that we've seen in the last five, six years, and same uh, applies to the ride-sharing services. Uh, but it is really the missing link, to, in my opinion, to enable new forms of mobility. But again, it relies on the ability of uh, the public transit uh, authorities and the public transit operators and the private sector, like the person uh, you had dinner with to talk together and agree on the best way to collaborate, you know, to be able to offer seamlessness to the users uh, so that anybody could take a personal mobility unit such as a scooter and uh, uh, go to the station and have an integrated ticketing approach. And with that, uh, have the same opportunity to not drop the, the scooter at the entrance of the station, but dock it, charge it, enable better maintenance and therefore uh, improve safety of this. So it's, it's all a matter of making it fit together smartly. Looking ahead, what do you think vehicle design might look like in 20 or 30 years? I mean, given these changes in materials, given the potential of electrification or hydrogen or other modes, I mean, you know, will... Yeah. Will the vehicle of the future, the dominant urban mobility form, continue to be uh, a vehicle that can seat seven people and, and weigh 2,000 pounds? Uh, will it be some sort of hybrid between the cars we know it and uh, and something that resembles more of a bicycle? Um, there's, of course, many designs that are floated, but I'm curious if you know, what, what you would bet on or what you think is the right form factor for cities, increasingly dense ones. I think here again, we have to look at a, a little bit of a regional approach to have a better visibility of this. I would say that where, for example, um, public transit is deficient or, you know, bus lines are, are not too frequent, uh, probably there we will see a, a big opportunity on the market for minivans and minibuses, which would therefore be shared um, and even sometimes autonomous. This is the case in, in Latin America, for example, and in Africa, where for decades the informal uh, mobility has been minibuses that were, that were driven by private uh, entrepreneurs and private drivers. And so we should think about this in the digital age where, you know, the buses uh, would be clearly uh, one, one type of vehicle. But there are all other cities, and I'm thinking, for example, to the uh, mega cities of Asia, where 
probably micro mobility and, and you know very small vehicles, individual or two people seated vehicles will be the norm. And um, we we do think very often that we are creating things new. But if you look at the concepts uh, that have been presented in the various auto shows for the last fifteen years, all the designers of the world already saw those as a, as an opportunity. So uh, I think it's, it, there is not one uh, silver bullet answer to this question. We will see different types of vehicles across different segments appearing in many cities. Um, the hope again, and uh, I would say not the hope, but the must realized condition is that these cars are shared or these vehicles are shared because that's the only way to uh, really reduce the emissions and uh, recover the space that is available in cities. So where do you fall then, since you mentioned autonomous vehicles, and given the fact that, you know, that Waymo has begun autonomous ride hailing, so we sort of tiptoed into the commercial autonomous age, uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the impact of autonomous vehicles? Because in one scenario, uh, you know, Robin Chase, the founder of Zipcar, has described a heaven scenario where central fleets of clean, electric, shared autonomous vehicles massively eliminate congestion, but she's also outlined a hell scenario where so-called empty zombie cars are dispatched to run errands, filling our streets with autonomous traffic jams and massively increasing uh, kilometer miles, kilometers traveled. Um, so I'm curious, where do you fall on that side of the divide? Is, is, will it be heaven or hell? <laughs> I think uh, it will not be black and white. I believe that uh, autonomous cars have a, have a great potential when it comes to increasing safety. They have a great potential when it comes to improving efficiencies because while they are driven uh, at the day, they could also be operating at night for goods delivery. So there is really here a great opportunity. But uh, like for everything else and specifically for technology, if it's not accompanied, if it's not regulated, if it's not used in the right way, we will see, indeed, we will see hell. It's already proven by many studies and there was a, a study led in Boston I think a year ago or a year and a half ago, that was clearly showing that uh, it would increase, that, that autonomous cars in city centers would increase congestion up to 10%. Because indeed, there are uh, potentially empty cars trying to find their ways in a congested city center to their owner. So, no, I'm, I'm quite hopeful with the autonomous cars, but I do think that, you know, it is again another technology that needs to be properly uh, implemented. And we will have to rely on the policymakers, on the corporate world, on the users to do it in the right way. And I don't think it will apply similarly again in every region. And yeah, no, it's, it's, it's promising, um, especially because we will also see these cars being more and more standardized. And therefore, it opens again the opportunity to redesign vehicles in a more circular manner, managing materials and usage for, uh, for higher value. Interesting. You, you know, you mentioned the policymakers and we talked a bit about government earlier, but I'm curious, you know, a lot of the decisions being made around mobility and, and, and which modes we favor is being made by policymakers at the local levels versus the federal. And I'm curious if there's a city, you know, uh, that you think is doing this right, which one would it be? Because we've seen in Europe, for example, you know, some cities, Paris, Madrid, uh, are moving to restrict, if not ban cars altogether from city centers or, or internal combustion engines, the, the ultra low emission zones you mentioned. Um, others are rushing headlong into autonomy, like Singapore and Dubai, hoping to shift uh, the vast amount of trips into autonomous systems. Um, what, what city do you look to as a success that has the right combination of public transport, policy, uh, land use, etc.? I have not come across the one city that is ticking all the boxes at this stage. Um, I think we have to look at uh, 
probably the Nordics in Europe have a very good uh, way of addressing active mobility and the related infrastructure, which is taking a lot of the burden out of the, the road infrastructure and therefore cars. We do see a lot of efforts in other uh, big cities to you know, maximize the usage of public transit and try to make it for free or make it at very low cost. And that is also, I think, a very strong direction. What can we learn from the pushback in these cities that have succeeded in making these transformations? I mean, for example, you mentioned the Nordics, and I also think of Amsterdam as you know examples of cities that invested heavily in bicycling infrastructure and changed their entire patterns of mobility. And in the United States, there's a rallying cry that you know Amsterdam was not always Amsterdam, that it was once a car-choke city, that it was a series of policy changes and a series of deft interventions to win over citizens' trust. And I'm curious, you know, yeah, what can, we, what can we learn from those historical examples and how can we apply them to the sort of larger overall pushback against cars? I mean, we've seen in the United States, I know, for example, uh, you know, residents in every city, no matter how progressive, have fought to keep their parking and have fought to keep their cars. And at the federal level, you know, the government there is, you know, is battling the states over the ability to regulate, you know, fuel economy. Um, so, yeah, how do we make the benefits known? How do we basically convince people um, that they're not, you know, giving up their cars, they're being given something better? I think you, you touched the point of culture again here. And I think in order to really change the mindsets and the culture of people, first, it is extremely important to have a progressive vision and a progressive policy. And so we do see more and more when um, new city or, or uh, regional leaders are elected, they have this ambition to put in place uh, sustainability plans and sustainable mobility plans. And, and this is really, to me, the first criteria. There needs to be uh, political progressiveness or progressivism. The second one, which I think is essential because speed is at stake here, you know, we need to act very fast. It is essential, as I mentioned, for the local authorities to embrace new forms of collaboration for two reasons. First is to learn, you know, bring up the capacity that is existing within the city office um, uh, by uh, creating collaboration and learning cycles with the private sector. And with this, uh, we see that the cities are able to shape and approach the, the topics and their solutions with more pace. And that's, that's obviously uh, very, very important. And, and finally, I think the other element which I would pick, and I think Amsterdam is a very good example, but I have another example on Brussels that comes to my mind, is it is about accepting that not the city, oh sorry, neither the city, neither the private sector have the solution. It's not just technology. As we said, it's technology, mindset, policymaking and financing. And so, and if we do not have those together, uh, it is obviously going to be more difficult. And so it's about changing the narrative. It's about all of these stakeholders realizing that without collaboration, without the ability to talk to each other and address their problems together, compromising on, you know, the, the status quo, um, without this happening and without this new narrative, it will be always difficult and it will always be uh, failing in some part of the process. Thank you, Thomas. This has been a fascinating and inspiring conversation. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Greg. Well, thank you for listening. And we'll be back soon with another episode of Brighter Talks. 